KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, has Planned Parenthood gotten too cautious and too corporate? Are the risk managers running the organization? AL Press reports on the courage of independent abortion providers and on the failures of Planned Parenthood. Also, the secret to the Koch brothers' billions and the rise of their power in the Republican Party. It's in their purchase of a little-known refinery south of my hometown of St. Paul. For this episode of Your Minnesota Moment, we'll speak with Christopher Leonard, author of the award-winning bestseller, Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here as always, John. Well, we start today with your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The Minnesota legislature has passed a sweeping pro-labor bill that's about to be signed by the governor. Let me ask you about some of the provisions there. First of all, it mandates paid sick days. Who does this cover and what, what does it cover? Well, it covers virtually all workers in the state and it enables them to have six paid days in which, you know, they're sick. They're taking care of family members who are sick. And then this bill also forbids non-compete agreements in labor contracts. Remind us what that's about. That's uh, an all too pervasive uh, feature of the American uh, workplace relations in which when you sign a contract to go to work, you usually miss a small print, which says you can't go to work for uh, any enterprise we deem uh, to be a competitor. Now, you know, this is the kind of thing you would assume uh, that some uh, highly skilled professional who is subject to trade secrets of his uh, his company, how to, that they've decided, they figured out how to build a better widget than anyone else can't go to another company taking that secret widget information with him <laughs> or her. Uh, but in fact, uh, it's been uh, commonly used against, you know, fast food work as a way of keeping them from switching jobs. I mean, it's it's almost a form of serfdom. And there are reports that say these affect perhaps as many as 20 percent of all American workers. It turns out Minnesota is joining a, a very short list of states which have this uh, uh, provision of which one of the three is California. And in all cases, for re historic reasons I do not fully understand, those laws were passed in the 1800s. <laughs> wow. More recently, progressives have been pushing this stuff in, in other states, but now Minnesota has, uh, has joined the list. And Minnesota has also banned so-called captive audience meetings uh, during union drives. Explain what that's about. Well, here, Minnesota is going where no other state has gone uh, before or since, although since means only, you know, the last couple days. Uh, uh, during uh, unionization campaigns, employers... Uh, very frequently tell their workers, okay, you got to show up to this 2 p.m. meeting at which the workers are subjected essentially to one or another form of anti-union diatribe with no member of the pro-union faction permitted to 
you know, uh, submit questions or give a rebuttal or what have you. The current National Labor Relations Board is endeavoring to reclassify this as an unfair labor practice, and that would have been part of federal legislation had it passed to bring labor law up to date, but it didn't pass. And in in doing this, Minnesota is kind of walking a a tightrope because there are some legal authorities, certainly every lawyer working for a a corporation, who would say, look, this is, a state can't do this. This is preempted by the National Labor Relations Act. But it's actually, there's nothing explicit about this in either the National Labor Relations Act or even the Taft-Hartley Act, which scaled back the National Labor Relations Act. And so uh, Minnesota really is doing something that is both necessary and daring in passing that bill. And then Minnesota has passed several provisions for specific economic uh, areas for nursing homes, a very low paid, exploitative and growing part of the economy. Uh, They've established a board to set minimum pay and benefits. Uh, That's kind of an alternative to having a union for nursing uh, home employees. Yeah, well, it it is. And since, you know, the rate of unionization in the private sector is all of 6%, if you want to actually affect today workers' working conditions and incomes, this is the kind of thing you have to do. New York did this uh, under Governor Cuomo, where there was old Roosevelt-era legislation on the books that you could set up a board in a particularly beleaguered uh, industry uh, to set standards. In California, uh, the legislature did that uh, last year for uh, fast food workers, although that is now being held up by a pending referendum in which the fast food industry will try to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to convince California voters that this should be revoked. Uh, and, you know, through, they will do this through all range of uh, of deceptions. But anyway, Minnesota now joins that list. And it's, it is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of almost a form of sectoral bargaining, which uh, the European countries that have sectoral bargaining have better outcomes for their workers than their counterparts that don't have sectoral bargaining. It, you know, I mean, it, if nothing else, it, it kind of takes wages uh, out of the, the, the realm of competition. I mean, if the wage is set across a sector, if everyone in fast food makes 20 bucks an hour, then a McDonald's franchiser, uh, franchisee can't say, okay, in this place, we're paying you 18 bucks an hour. Can't do that. Uh, and that, that's important for raising living standards. And some of the other things Minnesota has uh, included in this new labor bill, it allows teachers to negotiate class size uh, for meat packers. It is setting up a system to avoid uh, injuries from repetitive actions and strain for construction workers. It provides protection from them being classified as independent contractors. And for Uber and Lyft drivers, Minnesota now guarantees a minimum wage. How about that? Yeah, well, a lot of this is dealing with sort of the independent contractor scam in which workers who decades ago or even recently as maybe seven or eight years ago 
would have been considered employees and therefore uh, subject to minimum wage laws and worker safety laws and uh, an insurance compens worker compensation laws and 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 uh, unemployment insurance and things like that. Uh, companies now get around that by saying, "Okay, you're an independent contractor, even if you're wearing, uh, you know, a, a a FedEx uniform, driving a FedEx truck." FedEx says you're an independent contractor, so that's a scam, and uh, Minnesota is uh, is is banning that scam, which is, I think, uh, uh, a real step forward in many ways. Taken as a whole, what Minnesota is doing is sort of saying, "Well, look, we understand because federal labor law uh, has, uh, you know, been uh, neglected and uh, undermined for decades. Uh, we're going to do what." Uh, your union would do if you really had the power to form a union. You don't, so the state's going to intervene on your behalf. And Minnesota also passed several other progressive measures that go beyond labor. They now have uh, automatic voter registration. They restored voting rights to felons. They passed some gun control. They are making prison phone calls free. They are allowing undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses. They finally legalized recreational marijuana. So the reason Minnesota can do all of these things is that they have a democratic trifecta. Mainly the 2022 elections. Mainly the 2022 new. elections yeah. where the Democrats regained control of the state Senate, held control of the state House of Representatives, and reelected the governor. This is what you can do if you have a trifecta. Could other states which have a blue trifecta do this? The answer is sure. Now, some of those states have already done a lot of it. California has done a lot of it. But I think one, one useful thing for progressives would to sort of be set up a template for this is what a trifecta state can do. And where is your state fallen short? And how can we fix this? You know, if you look at New York, the governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, who was sort of the accidental governor because Mario Cuomo wanted someone who would, uh, you know, the state would pay no attention to as his running mate, selected her as lieutenant governor. And she's not really progressive and doesn't particularly seem to know what she's doing. In Massachusetts, you have the reverse situation in which the statewide elected officials are uniformly progressive and very, very competent. And the legislature is largely made up of old democratic hacks. So there are trifectas and there are trifectas. And I think one of the goals of progressives in blue states should be to make sure that the progressivism of the Democrats in, in your particular state is reflected uh, in the lawmaking bodies of your state as well. In the prospect, Ryan Cooper had another very interesting argument about why Minnesota is different. He pointed out that Minnesota Republicans have been a pretty significant force and a real threat to the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, as the Democrats called themselves there. Uh, as we said, the Republicans controlled the state Senate until uh, two years ago. So the Minnesota Democrats have to compete, run a serious campaign of appealing to voters with progressive uh, proposals, whereas in New York, the Republican Party is pretty insignificant and the Democratic establishment focuses above all on maintaining its control of the party machinery and the patronage that comes 
uh, with that, Minnesota Democrats have had to compete, and that has made them a stronger party. And, you know, part of the lesson here is that their main way of competing is on the kind of bread and butter issues that are very popular. You help real people with real economic issues, uh, and uh, they, you know, they they support that. Uh, I think that's an important lesson uh, for, for for Democrats everywhere. Uh, and in general, you know, I think more and more of the Democratic Party gets that, but it's still not uh, universal and not sufficient. So we've talked about the news from Minnesota. What's the news from Texas? Well, I wrote a piece saying, you know, even as there's this thing called cosmic inflation, which says that the universe is expanding, you know, at an ever rapid rate, stars are moving away from each other at an ever rapid rate. Red states and blue states are moving away from each other at an ever rapid rate. If you want to understand, among other things, why the bargaining between uh, Biden and McCarthy has gone nowhere. Just look at the states. So while blue states are doing versions of the kind of thing that uh, Minnesota has been doing, you see the absolute reverse in uh, in red states. Just yesterday, South Carolina outlawed abortions after six weeks. Arkansas and other states are looking at legalizing child labor. And in Texas, you have a real interesting fight between uh, the Republican legislature uh, and statewide elected officials on the one hand, and all the major cities in Texas, which are becoming increasingly democratic and which pose a long-term threat to Republican rule. So so two things in Texas that are worthy of notice. Uh, a bill which will soon arrive on uh, Governor Abbott's desk, which gives uh, the state the power essentially to overturn elections uh, in any county of the state that has 2.7 million residents or more, which is to say one county, Harris <laughs> County, uh, the uh, county of uh, metropolitan Houston, which is the largest city and the largest metropolitan area in the state, which always votes Democratic. So guess what? If uh, they allege uh, there's some flaw in the voting or in the vote counting, the state can demand uh, a new election that the state itself would supervise. That That's on the one hand. On the other, th then complementing uh, this horror, there's a bill that has passed, uh, I believe the Senate at least, which would say that no city can pass any regulation affecting labor or worker safety or property rights or uh, environmental law. Uh, or, or housing laws or anything that exceeds the standards of the state. Now, get get that. So the standards of the state, whatever they are, and in Texas, they're not much. Now, you can't already, you can't violate the standards by doing less. Now you can't, if that passes, now you can't, uh, uh, you, you can't violate the standards by doing more. It kind of suggests that there really is no point in having local government. Uh, and it, you know, it's it's an absolute uh, departure from what has been more or less a standard American practice of sharing power between the federal government and the state government and the cities. I asked whether other 
blue trifecta states could do what Minnesota is doing? Could other red trifecta states do what Republicans are doing in Texas to strip Democratic cities of all governing powers? Sure. If you look at Tennessee, for instance, you see the legislature, the Republican legislature, gerrymandering the congressional districts so that Nashville essentially could no longer elect its own member of Congress, who would be a Democrat. You see it expelling uh, Demo- uh, two Democrats, one from Nashville, one from Memphis, and they didn't like. And then the cities uh, re- reinstating them. In Alabama, the city, the Democratic city of Birmingham, for years has been put, has been uh, enacting minimum wage laws, all of which get struck down uh, by the Alabama legislature, which says cities can't have minimum wage laws. I should add that there are only six states that don't have minimum wage laws, and five of them are in the Deep South, which sort of, if you're looking for continuities of slavery, there's, there's, there's a lesson there. In Florida, uh, Mr. DeSantis, who is, as we speak, becoming a pre- official presidential candidate, said that the DA of uh, Pinellas County, which I think is Tampa, who was an elected DA, who said he really wasn't inclined to prioritize violations of the state's new uh, anti-abortion you know, prohibition laws, he, uh, he suspended him. You'll see uh, as the, the southern cities turn ever more democratic, with a capital D, and Republicans, through gerrymandering, uh, maintain control of the state legislatures, you're just going to see really flashpoints of, as it were, our current civil war going on. There's there's one more thing in Texas, by the way, a report, I think it was in the Washington Post, saying one of the bills that may well pass in the closing days of this year's legislative session in the Texas legislature is a bill requiring the posting of the Ten Commandments in every schoolroom. So separation of church and state isn't exactly uh, ranking high on uh, the red state to-do list. Don't you do that in the offices of the American Prospect? Uh, uh, <laughs> our Ten Commandments are a little different from the, uh, the standard okay. version. You opened up with this astrophysics image of the planets flying apart at increasing rate in the opposite directions as a metaphor for what's happening to the red states and the blue states in America. But isn't public opinion in the red states still supporting a lot of progressive issues? On economics, absolutely. Every time they're uh, allowed to vote on raising the minimum wage, no matter what the legislature says, they vote to raise it. Every time the issue of expanding Medicaid as uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, a.k.a. Obamacare, uh, said a state could do, and the feds will pick up more than 90% of the cost, they vote to do it, even though Republican state governments have uh, have opposed to it. And on abortion, uh, you know, legis- here legislatures are outlawing it uh, just this week in uh, in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, uh, even red states, uh, uh, Kansas and Kentucky, most notably, people have gone to the polls and said, no, we want abortion rights. And so uh, a gap does open up. And particularly because on economic issues, anytime you give uh, the citizenry a right to vote, they're, they're going to vote for, you know, uh, more worker rights and uh, uh, helping middle and lower income people. 
you know, if you look at why Republicans are waging the culture wars, it's because they don't even want to discuss the economic things because they know they're going to lose. There's an interesting aspect to your last point there. We know that in Florida, DeSantis has launched this campaign against the Disney Corporation. Or Disney announced that as a corporation, it opposed DeSantis's so-called don't say gay bill, which banned elementary schools from teaching about homosexuality. DeSantis then sought to remove tax exemptions and exemptions from various regulations for Disney at the gigantic Disney World Resort Complex in Orlando, uh, which is a huge part of the Florida economy. Seems to me what's happening here is, is that the Republican Party used to be committed to keeping government weak, getting government off our backs to let business flourish and do what it wanted. Now, at least in Florida with DeSantis, the party is committed to creating a strong government that will enforce Christian nationalism on these international corporations, some of which are based in Los Angeles. That seems to be a dramatic ideological change for the Republican Party. Or am I going too far here? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, you're right that this has become uh, the primary focus of the Republican Party precisely because they don't really want to uh, raise economic issues uh, in front of the public. But, you know, they still support all of the tax cuts going to uh, uh, big business. These two things taken together are out of sync. There's no question about that. To some of the right-wing populists to talk a pro-worker line, uh, like a Josh Hawley sometimes and a Marco Rubio sometimes, you, you, you can kind of envision, well, if we can get an, a, a, a white nationalist majority with some business and enough of the working class, we can get to 50% plus one. I don't think they can. And I don't think their uh, pro-worker bona fides uh, are going to uh, go unchallenged. And uh, I suspect they can be pretty readily undermined. But I mean, keep in mind, fascist movements historically have rallied, you know, lower middle class and uh, working class peoples around uh, nationalist and racialist themes. And yeah, they get some business support, but, you know, that can be their base. And that's where you see certainly a big chunk of the Republican Party headed. So from our point of view, are we supporting Disney in this fight with Ron DeSantis over tax exemptions and regulatory exemptions? Uh, you are you smiling. Know, uh, you are there's, smiling. There's there's uh, something like uh, you know when the Supreme Court delivers uh, a decision, there are concurring decisions that say, <laughs> "Well, we support this, but not that." Uh, and we we'd have to get into those kinds of weeds to answer that question <laughs> adequately. Okay. One last thing. Putin released this list of 500 Americans who are now banned from travel to Russia. In the fine print there, I noticed that the list includes the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger. The only time he's appeared in history is when he refused to, quote, find the 11,780 votes Trump needed to win Georgia in 2020. Uh, what is Putin telling us here by banning Brad Raffensperger from travel to Russia? 
I I think he's trying to make clear just how he and Donald Trump are joined at the hip. I would imagine if and when Trump gets the Republican nomination, that will be brought up. <laughs> and uh, the fact that increasingly increasing numbers of Republicans do not support uh, American support for Ukraine and have always, and that a lot of hardcore Republicans have always uh, had warm feelings about Putin's uh, opposition to Western liberalism and gay rights and feminism and those sorts of things. I think that's one of the places where Republicans are headed. And I think there is some price to be paid by Republicans but if Trump is nominated in the campaign that will follow. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Planned Parenthood is known to all as the organization that provides abortion services and defends abortion rights. But is Planned Parenthood too cautious and too corporate? Are they forcing independent clinics to take the biggest risks? AL Press reported on that for The New Yorker. He's also written for The Atlantic and The New York Times op-ed page. He's a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Type Media Center and author of the unforgettable book, Dirty Work. We talked about it here. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. AL Press, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be here. When the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, a lot of our friends immediately sent a check to Planned Parenthood. People sent checks even though it's an immensely wealthy organization. Planned Parenthood and its affiliates have more than $2 billion. It's also a big organization. In addition to National Planned Parenthood, there are 49 affiliates like Planned Parenthood Los Angeles, Planned Parenthood of Greater New York, which raise their own money from 18 million donors and run 600 healthcare centers with 2 million patients annually. And the affiliates have broad discretion to set their own policies. The official Planned Parenthood motto is care no matter what, but it turns out some of the affiliates are less willing to provide abortion services than others. And in many places, independent abortion clinics do a lot of the work and face a lot of the threats from violent anti-abortion activists. For example, the Blue Mountain Clinic in Missoula, Montana. Tell us about them, starting with the Montana Supreme Court and what it says about abortion rights in that state. Montana is this fascinating state because it is one of the states that could well have had a trigger law go into effect banning all abortion services because the Republican Party now has a supermajority um, in the Montana legislature. The Montana governor is very anti-choice, very anti-abortion, as is the attorney general. But the Montana Supreme Court has recognized in a previous ruling that Montanans have uh, a right to privacy that includes decisions over bodily integrity, and that that covers the decision 
of whether or not to terminate pregnancy. So it has this protected status. And that's really important because it is surrounded by states where abortion right after the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last June, where immediate bans went into effect. And so right away, a major question arose about whether Montana and its clinics um, and its abortion providers would welcome patients from other states uh, seeking abortion care. And it turned out that this flared into something of a controversy because the independent clinics in Montana, in particular, the one you named, Blue Mountain Clinic, but there's another one um, run by a woman named Helen Weems. The two independent clinics said, yes, we should provide abortion care uh, to patients coming from other states. And Planned Parenthood initially balked. um, And we learned this through an email that leaked uh, onto Twitter, um, a reporter um, had uh, gotten hold of this leaked email and it sort of went viral. By the way, you will not find it today. It's been expunged. But basically, whereby Planned Parenthood circulated an internal memo saying, we're not going to provide abortion care to out-of-state patients because of the legal risks. And although that decision was reversed uh, about a month or so later, it raises the question of who is it that takes the biggest risks uh, when it comes to uh, extending care for women in, in this new era. And let's note that abortion rights is an issue you've been thinking about and writing about for a long time. I'm the son of an abortion provider. I've written a book uh, called Absolute Convictions about the murder of a physician who performed abortions in Buffalo, New York. His name was Barnett Slepian, and he was murdered in his home in 1998. And one of the things I want listeners to know right off the bat is that I am well aware that anyone who provides abortion care in this country, that any physician who is in any way associated with abortion um, takes a risk, takes, takes a physical risk, takes the risk of being stigmatized, of being sent nasty notes, death threats, uh, you name it many things that my own father has faced during his uh, time as a physician. And so I don't want to minimize that at all, but I think it's important that we dig into and get into who is taking the biggest risks when it comes to this care and who has the least resources and the most. So Planned Parenthood of Montana reversed their original decision and agreed that they would provide abortion care for out-of-state patients. But there's a big qualification to the decision they made. That's right. And the um, director of the Blue Mountain Clinic that you mentioned, Nicole Smith, she referred to this as a partial reversal because um, there there is the question of folks coming from out-of-state into Montana for medical abortions. And will they be mailed pills? Suppose they live uh, somewhere near the borders and they can get to a FedEx or they can get to a motel or some address pretty close to them. They can drive there. Are you willing to send them the medication to have a a medical abortion? And Nicole Smith of the Blue Mountain Clinic and the other independent clinics in Montana said, yes, we are willing to do that because we want to make it as easy as possible for these uh, this cohort of patients to access care. 
Planned Parenthood is still saying that, that those patients from out of state actually have to come to one of its facilities in person. So they have um, you know, offices in Billings and Helena and Missoula and, and uh, one other place, but that can be a long trek. And furthermore, if you have to take the medication there, it is protecting the provider from the risk that that patient will go back to a state where abortion is now illegal. And perhaps if a complication arises or if anything should happen, the, the provider can at least assure, be assured, well, they took the medication, the abortion took place in Montana, where it is still protected under the law. And Nicole Smith of Blue Mountain and, and the other independent clinic there, Helen Weems as well, are saying, you know what, we are going to leave that decision to the patient. Yes, it's theoretically possible that a patient could come, get the medication, go back to their state, have a complication, or even take the medication in their state, and that could expose us to some risk. But in this day and age, as, as Nicole Smith put it, I thought this was, was a really powerful point, that risk is either going to fall on patients or some of it will be assumed by the providers. And in her view, the providers have to step forward and say, we're going to assume it. This is worth it to us because it is such a crisis. So in Montana, the independent clinics will mail mifepristone, the abortion drug, to any address inside the state of Montana, even if it's just one mile over the Wyoming line. What's the Planned Parenthood policy? Planned Parenthood policy is that that patient, if they are out of state, has to come to Planned Parenthood's facility, the brick and mortar facility, make that trip, travel that distance. And again, this is, it may sound minor, but that can be a major uh, trip. I, I actually interview uh, a woman who, who came to uh, Montana, uh, traveled five hours by car to get to Missoula. You know, suppose they can't do that. Suppose they don't have a day to do that. And then there's the story you tell of Planned Parenthood South Texas. Of course, Texas is the state that has been ground zero for the abortion rights battle, going back to SB8, the law that banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, and offered that $10,000 bounty to any private citizen who successfully sued someone involved in such a procedure. That seemed unconstitutional because at the time it passed, Roe v. Wade was still federal law. I thought Planned Parenthood South Texas would have continued to perform abortions in promise to provide legal defense for anybody prosecuted under SB 8. But what did Planned Parenthood of South Texas do? Planned Parenthood of South Texas actually stopped doing any abortion care after SB 8 became law. And that really raised eyebrows among advocates and actually among some of the physicians uh, that, I, that I interviewed when I did this story in Texas. Because as you just said, at the time, Roe was still the law. And it, the SB 8 bill was seen as an effort to intimidate, to intimidate providers, to basically say, if you dare provide this abortion care, we will go after you with these you know, bounty rewards that, that vigilantes, in a sense, that private citizens can bring, even though they're not parties to these um, to, to what is happening. Um, and there were doctors in Texas who said, you know, to hell with this. I have an obligation 
to provide this constitutional right to my patients. One particular uh, physician, Dr. Alan Braid, actually wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which he said, I am going to continue to do this care. And he told me he had peers who were willing to take the same step, and yet Planned Parenthood of South Texas was taking the most risk-averse stance, which is not just let's comply with the law, but let's not do any abortion care because it could get us into legal trouble. And it sort of highlights what, what is a theme of my story and a question it raises, which is, you know, is a big, sprawling organization like that ill-equipped to take the kinds of risk, to, to be the risk taker, to be on the front lines, pushing for this, uh, pushing for bolder action that essentially says, well, yeah, Roe was reversed, but this is a fundamental right, and we will do everything we can to extend and to provide it. You quote in The New Yorker one reproductive rights scholar who told you that Planned Parenthood has, quote, turned over this movement to a whole new group of lawyers, not the constitutional lawyers, but the risk managers. And that has left it to the independent clinics to do the work and take the risks. Another example, Casper, Wyoming, where you visited Julie Burkhart, the founder of an abortion care nonprofit named Wellspring Health Access. That's my favorite part of your New Yorker reporting. Tell us about Julie Burkhart and Casper. Julie Burkhart is a really remarkable figure. Um, and John, as you know, I've written a book about moral courage. And um, boy, she's a, she's a poster child for moral courage. Uh, Julie Burkhart um, actually worked in, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, um, at an abortion clinic where George Tiller, Dr. George Tiller worked. And he was murdered in the foyer of his church. And that took away the only, the only clinic serving not only Wichita, but, but really a very vast area surrounding it, a large rural area. And who stepped in to say, let's reopen this clinic, let's do this, it wasn't Planned Parenthood, which actually had a facility in Wichita. It was Julie Burkhart, and it took her a couple of years. She faced death threats. She was even advised by advocates uh, of abortion rights, you know, this will only bring more violence to the community. She opened the clinic. In the beginning, nobody came. Soon, hundreds and then thousands of, of women and, and patients were being served. She then did the same thing in Oklahoma City, uh, again, a place where no one was, even though there was a Planned Parenthood there. And now she has opened a clinic in Casper, Wyoming. It's really a remarkable step because Wyoming has actually gone forward and said, we're going to ban all abortion. Who challenged them in court? Julie Burkhart, citing the state constitution, saying, you know, you've got a right to privacy provision, and we think it, it, we will win, and we will continue to provide, be able to provide care here. Her clinic just opened for service there. It's a very hostile, remote area, the kind of remote area one would think a well-funded organization like Planned Parenthood would kind of circle on the map and say, you know what, let's go here. And I learned from your piece in The New Yorker that Planned Parenthood's history of caution, let's call it, about providing abortion services is not a factor of the post-Roe era. It has a long history. They have for decades emphasized that only 3% of their work was doing abortions, that they are a comprehensive women's health organization, not just an abortion provider. And of course, that's true. But, but what? 
But they're also the brand of the movement. They're also, you know, the, as you said in your opening, the organization people write a check to the minute they hear uh, that uh, a repressive anti choice or anti-abortion measure has been put in place. They don't think of the well, Wellspring Health Center because most people haven't heard of it or the Abortion Care Network, the association of, of independent clinics across the country and independent clinics, by the way, provide the majority of abortion care in the United States. They're less well-known, they have less resources generally, but they play this crucial, crucial role. And I should say my piece it is 100% supportive of the mission of Planned Parenthood. What it asks and questions and interrogates is, can they go further? Can they be bolder in fulfilling that mission? And as you just said, the language and the messaging of the organization has often suggested caution. And that has some providers feel and some advocates feel left the moral high ground to the anti-abortion movement. There's a second part of Planned Parenthood. In addition to the service provider, there's the political arm, Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And their motto is, we will never back down in the fight to protect abortion access. They push for pro-choice laws and policies in every election. They mobilize and educate voters. You report that last year, Planned Parenthood Action helped defeat anti-abortion ballot initiatives in many states notably Kansas and Kentucky, and along with the ACLU, they filed lawsuits across the country challenging state restrictions. But Planned Parenthood Action Fund has also made some controversial decisions about which battles to fight and which to avoid. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul, that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Partly because of the work of Planned Parenthood Action, in 2020, Democrats in Minnesota won a trifecta, control of both branches of the state legislature, and re-elected the Democratic governor. This is a huge success for abortion rights, especially since the Dakotas and Iowa are anti-abortion states right now. But tell us about Unrestrict Minnesota and the organization Gender Justice. Yeah. So what happened, John, is there were a group of, I would call them reproductive justice organizations um, that see abortion really as part of a broader struggle for equality, not just a single kind of issue, not just choice, but real reproductive justice and equality, who said, you know what, this state, Minnesota, that we're living in has all kinds of restrictions, parental notification laws, 24-hour waiting periods, um, laws requiring physicians to read false information or misleading information to patients before providing abortion care. Let's get rid of all these laws. Let's push to get rid of them by filing a lawsuit. And let's launch a grassroots campaign that will, you know, really rally popular support for abortion rights. And what I discovered in my report reporting is that um, you know this is this extraordinary coalition that comes together called Unrestrict. It is successful, and Planned Parenthood is is curiously missing. If you go to the Unrestrict Minnesota webpage, you will see all kinds of organizations, LGBTQ organizations, church, uh, progressive uh, faith community groups, but you won't see Planned Parenthood there. And in fact, they not only didn't participate in the lawsuit those who led and brought the lawsuit felt that they tried to scuttle the effort. And what was Planned Parenthood's reasoning? 
I think that they felt it would backfire, that this kind of aggressive lawsuit, keep in mind, this was 2018, 2019, when the conversations began, Donald Trump was president. There was broadly perceived uh, a sense of precariousness about Roe and also about him being reelected that, you know, my God, are we, is this a time to be aggressive? Let's just defend and and, and try to get, as you said, the, the governor of the legislature on our side. Now, by the way, Gender uh, Justice, the organization that brought this lawsuit, also saw that Roe was hanging by a thread and they had a very different approach. They said, you know what, let's mobilize, let's organize locally and within this state to make it a beacon of access. And they decided to take the risk, a risk that Planned Parenthood did not want them to take. And what happened to the gender justice lawsuit that Planned Parenthood refused to join? That lawsuit, remarkably enough, win uh, really just after the Dodd decision. It was kind of buried in the news because it came so quickly after this rollback, but, um, but they won. And um, and actually, I quote a ruling from the judge in the case. It's it's an extremely powerful statement. Judge Thomas Gilligan, a district court judge, who declared when affirming their case and rolling back these restrictions, the right to choose to have an abortion would be meaningless without the right to access abortion care. And that is really the theme of my story and, and what I think we all have to keep an eye on as we move forward. Most of Planned Parenthood's contributions, it turns out, come from uh, the families of a few billionaires. Warren Buffett's family foundation has given hundreds of millions to Planned Parenthood. Uh, Mackenzie Scott last year gave Planned Parenthood $275 million, the largest single contribution in the organization's history. She's the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos. So it's hard to say that Planned Parenthood needs money for people who want to give money to someplace other than Planned Parenthood, what are some good choices? There's a National Association of Abortion Funds. These are justice funds that, that basically their sole purpose is to help women of lesser means uh, and patients of lesser means uh, obtain access to abortion care. That's one possibility. The Abortion Care Network, which is an association of independent clinics, uh, is another. And then I would say, you know, individual outfits like Just the Pill, which is doing extraordinary, really cutting edge work to basically get abortion medication and pills to patients in very remote places where they wouldn't, they can't get to a brick and mortar facility. And of course, Julie Burkhart's Wellspring Health Center, which to me is again, a model of how this work can be done. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? Well, I think I would just add one last thought, which is that this issue is so polarized and so violent that I think it has created kind of a code of silence, not just among advocates and providers, but I would also say among a lot of journalists and progressive news outlets that, you know, even if you sort of know there are issues with Planned Parenthood, it's not the right time to air this. Um, we are under assault. The, the right to abortion is under assault. It will not benefit the movement, but movements benefit by reflecting on what has gone wrong and what might go right and what might be changed. And I was so inspired 
by the voices in this story who came forward and said, knowing everything I just said, still wanted to go on the record and, and talk about these issues. And that, I think, tells you something about how important it is to them and really should be to anyone who supports the cause of abortion rights that we do actually have to talk about these things. And as reporters and news outlets, we do have to cover them because otherwise nothing changes. AL Press, you can read his article, The Problem with Planned Parenthood, online at newyorker.com. AL, thanks for this report and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Great to talk to you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, the secret of the Koch brothers' fortune. For that, we turn to Christopher Hawthorne, author of the book, Cokeland. You say the key to the Koch's rise to power, if there is a single one, was Charles buying control of the Pine Bend Refinery south of St. Paul in 1969. I don't think anybody else in 1969 thought that Pine Bend would be the key to becoming a billionaire. Why did Charles want to own it? The, the importance of the Pine Bend Refinery cannot be overstated. Yes, Charles Koch is one of his first moves as CEO to purchase it in 1969. And I, I think, you know... The guy has really great business sense, and, and he knows an opportunity when he sees it. But I think critically what sets Coke apart is that they think on this horizon of years instead of quarterly earnings. So he saw this asset, and he could see the profits that would, it would deliver over the next two, five, ten years, and that's why he bought it. But I think the performance of Pine Bend even outstripped anything Charles Coke could have envisioned at the time. And it really tells an important story, not just about America's energy system, but about our, our political economy, if you will. And, and here's the headline about why this one oil refinery, I, it was described to me as the cash cow, the crown jewel. It, it has delivered billions in profits over decades. And why was that? The reasons are really fascinating. The Pine Bend Refinery, which is kind of obscurely hidden up there in, in suburban St. Paul, it refines oil from the tar sands area of Canada. This is high sulfur, quote-unquote, dirty crude oil that not many refineries can process because of its chemical composition. So because not many people can process it, there are just big supplies of this oil piling up up there at the border in Canada. Not many people can buy it. So Coke, as one of the few purchasers, gets this oil really cheap. It refines it, and then it turns around and sells gasoline from that oil into these markets in the upper Midwest, you know, Chicago, Minneapolis, areas like that where gasoline prices are extremely high because there aren't that many refineries up there in that region. So Coke is buying extremely cheap, and it's selling really high. But the big question is, why is that sort of bottleneck or that dysfunction in the energy economy allowed to continue? 
We haven't built a new oil refinery in this country since 1977. It's a really uncompetitive sector of our economy. Everybody relies on gasoline to get to work, so it's essentially an energy monopoly. But we haven't built a new oil refinery, strangely enough, in large part because of the Clean Air Act regulations that have created this huge regulatory hurdle to get into the business and that the existing oil refineries have truly exploited and manipulated the clean air laws to keep out any new competitors. So you see how Coke sits on top of these assets that are tremendously profitable and sort of shielded from competition. So Pine Bend had great economic advantages. It also had one economic obstacle to tremendous profits. The Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, the OCAW, had organized the Pine Bend Refinery Workers. That was a a good union. It was a time when unions were strong. Minnesota was a union state. What happened to the OCAW in the contract negotiations of 1973? So this is one of the most important stories in the book, I think. You know, this is right when Charles Koch buys the refinery. He has big plans and big visions, but as he stated, there's a very strong, almost militant labor union standing in his way. In the, in the sense that, you know, you go back to the 1970s, labor unions had a lot of power in this country. They didn't just bargain for higher wages and higher retirement benefits. But they bargained for what we would call workplace rules, which were safety rules, so that a certain employee at the refinery would only work on one machine, and that employee would get to know that machine really well, and if it broke, another employee would come fix it. Now, that that introduces inefficiencies into the business, and it's frustrating for owners because you've got these kind of shackles on what you can do. Charles Koch vehemently opposed these kinds of limitations on management control of facilities. He has opposed labor unions from the beginning, and he hired a guy named Bernard Paulson to come into the refinery. And I wouldn't even say take a hard line on contract negotiations. He told the union, Bernard Paulson told me, that it was basically take it or leave it. Charles Koch has got a new way of doing things. You're either on board or you're not. And what resulted was a nine-month-long strike bitter, bitter dispute. Coke was bringing in scab workers. It was bringing in workers via helicopter. They lived in bunker-like conditions. There was industrial sabotage. But Charles Coke never wavered in this fight. And in essence, Charles Coke broke the OCAW. After nine months, they came back to the table. They signed a contract. And I say they were essentially tamed from that point forward. Well, today, Pine Bend still going strong. It's run by something called Flint Hills Resources, which is, I guess, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. But if you look up the Flint Hills website, it says their purpose is safeguarding the environment. It's all about ducks and forests. It's all about the Pine Bend Bluffs natural area, known for its, I quote, its stunning views of the upper Mississippi River Basin and its critical role in providing wildlife habitat. And Flint Hills Resources sponsors the Flint Hills Family Festival in St. Paul, which they describe as an annual multi-day event featuring performances, free activities, art making, and more. Families, I'm quoting, are 
swept away on adventures that spark imagination and inspire exploration, close quote. That doesn't seem to be the way that Charles Koch got control of the refinery in Pine Bend. You know, there's always more to the story. Let's fast forward to the year 1996, which actually plays a big role in why this facility is called Flint Hills Resources instead of Coke Refining. And, you know, at that time, there was a huge pollution problem at this refinery. Yeah. The machinery was producing toxic ammonia levels that were way outside of the permit levels. And Coke managers, instead of shutting down the refinery to fix the problem, they chose to flush this ammonia-laden water out into the nearby wetlands and illegally pollute the wetlands. And, you know, the book tells the story of this one woman at the refinery who tried to get them to stop. She was an environmental engineer who tried to stand up to her bosses and get them to stop. And she was really marginalized and steamrolled. And I think that the reason for that is it's this corporate culture of everybody moving in lockstep. You know, the old labor unions created a counterbalance. But once that was wiped away, the, the sort of voices who got up and, and tried to speak against the authority, they're, they're not listened to as much. And anyway, you know, the federal authorities and the state authorities discovered this criminal wrongdoing at Pine Bend, and there was a huge record-breaking fine that was imposed on Coke for that. And it was after that very high-profile criminal action that they changed the name to Flint Hills Resources and, and kind of moved past the bad baggage that was locally attached to that word, you know, Coke refining. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this program. Today we featured Christopher Hawthorne, author of the book, Cokeland. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds, KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.